Hello, Joseph Martin here for another episode of The Stagey Place. I'm thrilled to be back guest hosting again. Uh, this week I'm speaking to Hayley McGee, a creator and performer of Age is a Feeling, which is at the Soho Theatre, which opens today, if you're listening to the episode, on the day it's released, the 14th of February, and runs until uh, the middle of March. I was lucky enough to see Age is a Feeling at Summer Hall at the Fringe last summer, 2022, uh, and you'll hear me mention it in the episode in the interview but I think it was a really really gorgeous piece of theatre and I would thoroughly thoroughly recommend that you go and see it anyway enough of that for now uh, I hope you are doing well and enjoy the interview Hayley McGee hello welcome to the stagey place how are you oh thank you so much for having me I'm doing really well Excellent. Good. Thank you for, for joining us on. Obviously, uh, we're talking to you now, uh, the, the final day of January, uh, so not long until Ages of Feeling opens at the Soho Theatre uh, on the 14th of February, on a Tuesday, uh, and then runs all the way till Saturday the 11th. Um, how are preparations going? They're going really well. My director, uh, Adam Brace, is he is a really hot director. He directs Liz Kingsman's show, One Woman Show. An outstanding show. Outstanding show, uh, extraordinary. And he also directs uh, Leo Reich, who's an amazing comedian. Mm -hmm. He took Edinburgh by storm this year. And he directs Alex Edelman's show, Just For Us, which is on, he's an American comedian, but he's here in London right now doing a run at the the Chocolate Factory, the Menier Theatre in London Bridge. So basically, Adam is, and Leo's show is going to New York, so he's juggling these four shows right now. And so, as a result, our rehearsal process has been uh, configured in a way that I actually really like. So we've been, since the beginning of January, doing kind of two days a week together, up until his leaving for Australia, and then he'll come back and we'll have some intensive time together. But because I've done the show, Fairly recently, I did it at Edinburgh, and then I did a, a run at Soho for three weeks after the month in Edinburgh. It's pretty, the show's pretty deep in me, and so it's really just about familiarizing myself with it again and and figuring out how it lives in a slightly larger space. We're going from the upstairs at the Soho Theatre down into the, to the main house. So I love rehearsing in this way, where you just touch it a couple times mm. a week and come come back to it rather than... Uh, day after day, <laughs> week after week. And I, I think it's because I, you know, working on solo shows, I started out of necessity early on when you're doing it for no money and you're asking people to work with you for no money. I, I kind of got in this habit of like, well, what if we just did a day a week or an afternoon a week? And it's become a way that I really like to work. It kind of takes the panic and has a really amazing kind of um, effect of taking some of the panic and the stress out of it. It's like studying for an exam throughout a term rather than trying to cram uh, in the week before. That's a really, really good way of, of looking at it. I guess you need that breathing space. So you have written and uh, and are performing Age as a Feeling. I suppose you need that breathing space both as a performer and a writer to reassess the work, I suppose. So I, I saw Ages of Feeling at Summer Hall at French this year, and it was just just a really beautiful piece of theatre. And the space that you were in, the lecture hall, was was stunning. And I've never seen my partner cry at theatre ever, and he was just bawling. It was it, it was brilliant. Do you use those times between different runs of the same show to 
to reassess or do you try and take a little bit of time away and say, actually, I've done that now, I'm going to sort of take a bit of a holiday? Well, when I was developing the show, any time between performances was sort of, yeah, back to the drawing board, Mm -hmm. what needs to change, what wasn't working, how can... How can this part be clearer? How can this be tighter? How can we thread these themes through it more elegantly? But since doing the show at Edinburgh, and that just a note on that venue, Summer Hall was a teaching veterinary hospital. And so the venue I was in is called the Anatomy Lecture Theater, and it has these incredible wooden, um, this sort of like seats in a wooden horseshoe Mm. shape these beautiful wooden panels, wooden seats, little wooden desks at them, and the room is very atmospheric. And underneath the stage floor that they put down, there's actually a big drain where they would, I guess, dissect animals to go down the drain, but it's got a really tall domed ceiling. And when we, when we were thinking about going to Edinburgh, I knew that space and I thought it's a really great space because the audience is on three sides mm-hmm. and kind of holds you like a hug. And it just has that sort of like that that history and that atmosphere of of people trying to understand life and death. And yeah. yeah, it's a wonderful space. It's not one of those black boxes that you can just sort of project anything you want to it. The space has a lot of character. I do try to take breaks. I do try to uh, fill myself up with other things that are interesting. I read a lot of books. I read a lot of fiction. And I have consumed copious amounts of TV this Mm -hmm. past year. After the run in Edinburgh, I was back in London, as I said, and then I went to Toronto and I did a different show for a month at a theater there. I did my old show, my previous show, which is called The Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale. And so after I came back from that, I was really, I was pretty tired. And so I, yeah. I was I was doing what I call input. When I'm performing, I think I'm in output mode, and then and then I think you require a certain amount of input as a creative. If you're yeah. just doing output all the time, um, it starts to become very difficult to have new ideas and new impulses. So. Absolutely. For those of us uh, listeners that are that are not aware of Ages of Feeling, tell us about it. What do we need to know? Well, Ages of Feeling is a solo show that I made, and it's sort of headline and it sounds it sounds more depressing than it is ages of feeling is a show that looks at how our relationship with mortality shapes the way that we live it tells the story of your life it's written in the second person so everything is you this you that it tells the story of your life from the day of your 25th birthday through to your death and it charts the different turning points the forks in the road the rites of passage in between And the reason I start at 25 is because of this fact that it actually takes about 25 years for your brain to finish developing until you turn 25. You actually, your brain isn't actually able to fully understand cause and effect, long-term planning. There's an argument to be made that it's not until we're 25 that we're really able to grasp deeply our own mortality. And so, because the show's about mortality, that's why it starts. And it's really looking at, yeah, the the arc of an adult life. One of the themes that was emerging when when I was putting the show together is this sense that nobody gets to know everything about our lives, not even you. And so that theme is reinforced in the form of the show. There are 12 stories that exist in in the script, but each audience only hears 
six of those stories in a given performance and the audience chooses which of those six stories they'll hear. So although we always move from your 25th birthday through to your death, um, there are sort of moments where you get more detail, a sense of some of the moments where you brushed up against mortality and it changed the course of your life and you only hear half of those and and um, the other half the details are the details are lost i i remember when i was watching it um and i i won't say sort of the motif that you used because otherwise you know people should go and see it and find out um but when you got to the the stories that we hadn't chosen and the way that you moved on past those was oh, like i remember as an audience member going it was so heartbreaking so I was like I want to hear these ones as well and just we just moved past them and we carried on and it was so beautiful and frustrating in the best kind of way and I, I've never quite seen theatre told like that and, and obviously the, the the show is described as never the same twice for that very reason and this is something that's interested me looking at, at your work and, and the ex-boyfriend yard sale, your previous show. In these two shows especially, the audience have this this huge role to play in the show. Why why is that important to you as a as a creative, as a performer? What kind of role does the audience play while you're creating these pieces of work? Well, I love solo shows because they're in direct I mean, you can make a solo show where you don't acknowledge the audience, I think. That, that has been done in history. I'm thinking about Shirley Valentine. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of solo shows are performers talking directly to audiences. And for some reason, I trained as an actor and and when I started doing solo shows, or what, I think it started because I would do plays that had direct address in them. And I always thought, oh my God, I love, I love not having the fourth wall up. I love being able to to be in direct contact with audiences, it felt most authentic to me. It felt like there was no pretense, there was nothing artificial in in being able to acknowledge that relationship and acknowledge that that's really the exchange that was going on here. So I really like that. And I think also when I was studying theater and uh, turning things over in my mind and really thinking about why does the theater exist? Why is it important? What does it give us that nothing else can? You know, from quite an early age in my artistic life, I was thinking about, well, you know, what sets theater apart is is that the audience is necessary to the event. And in everything I've created, uh, solo shows I've created, I've always wanted to underline or highlight the audience's necessity. And sometimes it could be really subtle. In my very first solo show, which was called Oh My Irma, it was direct address, but I had this tiny moment in the show where I asked an audience member to touch my arm. I'd walk into the audience and I'd just say like, oh, would you touch my arm? That for me was sort of me exploring that, that, that the audience is necessary to the event. And in Ages of Feeling, they choose the, the stories that we hear. It's a very, you know, so it isn't, it, there is audience participation and they mm. are vital, but it's also very, nobody's brought up on stage. Nobody no. has to do anything uh, embarrassing or that asks a lot yep. of them. But, but then they are witness to and have directly influenced the performance. I think that's a really 
that is a really beautiful way of, of managing it because then they come away, especially those that have individually been asked by you to choose the stories, feeling that they've seen something completely unique and personalised to them. One more question um, sort of about creative process before we talk about you as an individual and your, and your history in, in theatre, but I, I, we talked about, you mentioned input and output um, as your two kind of states of being in creativity, and I love that. When you are in output mode as that performer and you're, you're doing work that you have created, especially with the audience being involved as they are with Ages of Feeling, and it feels like a constantly changing piece of work. How hard is it for you as the performer to take your writer hat off, leave that to one side, and say, this is it now, this is how it's going to be for a while, and we'll reassess it during the output time? Or are you constantly sort of between those two states of being and and allowing the piece to change? Where where does that separation come for you as writer versus performer? I think the performer in me wants to lock it down Mm. sooner than maybe I should. And I think I've been, because I want to learn the show and know the show and not be worried about remembering the show. So especially sort of when I'm developing a piece, and luckily, you know, I work with Adam Brace uh, here in the UK, and the, my director, Mitchell Cushman, he directed Ex-Boyfriend Yard Sale, and he directed my other solos before that. You know, I'm lucky to have these collaborators who are able to say, okay, you know, in the work in progress stage or in the preview stage, okay, Haley, let's talk about some changes that we can make that would make the show stronger. And I really respect them, and I really respect their their sense of how an audience is taking in a show and oftentimes I agree you know because you feel it when you're a solo performer on stage you can feel oh it's lagging here I'm Mm. losing them a little bit here and so having yeah having those kind of trusted uh, collaborators give me the courage to make those changes as a clogue gets closer and closer and closer to a premiere is really is really useful because yeah I think my my impulse because I like being in control and I like Hmm. being good at things is to lock it down earlier. But in the run of shows, I'll make small changes, but they're truly, truly tiny changes, or even in this um, sort of past with Adam rehearsing over the last month, you know, they're literally as granular as there's a line in the show where I say, and then something happens, and uh, and then your best friend does something, and someone calls you from the hospital. Mm. And, and I realized, oh, later in the show, I mentioned this best friend's stepsister, I should probably change that line to then your best friend does something and her stepsister calls you from the hospital. That's how kind of granular I am with ages of feeling now. So I wonder if if I have a sort of a year year break from ages of feeling, I might be able to go back to it and go like, oh, you know what, I want to change the beginning, something like that. But as it stands right now, I'm making tiny granular just you saying that line about then your best friend uh, that whole scene has just come back into my mind you know ah uh, you just yeah people need to people need to go and see this and 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 they will and you're already selling out which is fabulous so if you're listening to this uh, you should need you should you need to check the soho theater website right now and see if there's still tickets available because there might not be but if there is you need to buy them let's talk about uh, you as a creative where did your your work in theatre begin and what's your earliest memory of thinking hey this is this is good this is what I want to do this is where I want to be well my parents took me to the theatre and I had an aunt that I was very close to growing up took me to the theatre and and so I always loved going 
and I was taking dance lessons from the time I was three or four, really little, loved it. Mm. Um, so that was always kind of there, and I remember being taken to see The Sound of Music oh, with beautiful. Donnie. I think it was with Donnie and Marie Osmond, and saying to my aunt, I wish this would never end. And <sighs> so I, I do think there was a real sense for very early on of, I want to be doing something in the theater, and I knew that, yeah, I always kind of knew that and was sort of gunning towards it. Um, I didn't think it would be creating solo shows and performing them. I thought it would be more a kind of classical actor, or maybe mm. a, someone in musicals. Uh, but it just sort of went that way. Then I went to an arts high school, and by the end I was really focusing on drama. And then I went to a yeah a drama school in, in Toronto. And there, after I graduated there, most of my work was in new plays. So I was an actor in new plays. And in Canada, it's just a very different, it's a, it's a very small population and a very big landmass and a very young sort of arts and culture sector. And mm. so everybody kind of does everything. It's very normal for people to do a devised piece and then be in a Shakespeare show and then do an improvised musical. And then there's just way more movement between the different sub sectors. When I graduated, it was like, okay, well, I'd done Summerstock Theatre on a farm, and, and I'd written a play in drama school that was on at the Toronto Fringe, and I, then I was auditioning for commercials and, uh, and to play teenagers on TV shows. Going to these auditions, I, I, don't I never felt like a normal teenager. I don't know how I'll play one. Um, and I just had this sense of, well, maybe I could create a solo show because it's one character, one story, um, it gives me some kind of agency. I don't have to wait for anybody. I don't have to try to pay anybody or get collaborators on board. Yep. And, and it also, as a writer, it felt like I totally overwhelmed myself with this other play that I'd written that had nine characters. If I just make a solo show for myself, it would make me a better writer. It would allow me to perform. And so it was really kind of born out of, yeah, frustration and problem solving. And I just really took to the form. But... I was always able to be a quote-unquote proper actor and pursue my work as a, a writer-performer. Nobody was making this distinction, and I was really shocked when I moved to the UK. People would say, well, are you a theatre maker or are you a proper actor? And I was really surprised by that. I mean, now it's like mostly a theatre maker, but yeah, until I moved, I was yeah, straddling, straddling both careers. I think there's an argument to be made of the, that you were ahead of the curve on that because I I do think we in the UK are moving more towards that open-mindedness of you can do everything and almost by necessity of working in this industry you have to be able to turn your hand to at least a few different areas. I think it's very difficult to say quote-unquote proper actor but like, that's the one thing that I do because we all have to find work and you all have to pay the bills. And also, uh, I don't know if you feel the same, but I think it's also just interesting to be able to turn your hand to different areas of theatre. Mm. Why wouldn't you have a go? I think, why, why box yourself into one category? If you want to have a go at doing something else or you think something else is interesting, why wouldn't you do yeah. it? It keeps life interesting, doesn't it? And, it, and it's nice, I guess, I suppose as a, as a solo writer and performer, you, you are not beholden to someone else and your interpretation of your own work is I suppose the closest that it's possible to get as, as, as the person that's created it you know I guess that's maybe the fear of 
or the initial hurdle as a writer is to hand your work off to other people and allow their interpretations to become what is seen on stage but you, you're, you're not accountable to anyone else other than your director but you can say no actually this is what I meant by this so that's how I'm gonna that's how I'm gonna perform it that that feels that must feel quite freeing in a way I think that's one of the reasons I like performing solo so much is because of the freedom I feel to uh, be spontaneous and play with things mm. I think as an actor in other people's work and probably rightfully so you know you're serving the playwright and you're you're sort of serving a collective vision but but I think because I have this kind of wanting to be right and being a you know a bit of people please there is sometimes more a focus I would have more a focus on getting it right rather than being really present and finding things afresh and in my own work I just feel a real sense of freedom and ownership that I had in maybe in one or two instances of being an actor in a in a play that I didn't write, where I really felt, oh, I really get this character. Mm. And through this rehearsal process, I've been given a lot of agency, but oftentimes I didn't feel that. And so, um, yeah, just that sense of immersion that comes when you feel really free. You're like, I know the, I know the parameters I have to be free within, and I can really let it rip within those parameters. It's just really a wonderful feeling of, well, it, I think it allows for a, a flow state and I think it's hard, it was harder for me as a, as a kind of interpreter to get there. Um, but also maybe that's just speaking to the limitations of my work as, a, as an interpreter. As an interpreter, I'm not a kind of thoroughbred juggernaut. It's probably, it's probably also speaking to that being a, a, a challenge for me. I think it's important to be able to be that kind of introspective, but you know about about yeah about how you how you work as a as you say as a, as an interpreter. But so yes, of course, maybe that's a challenge. But if you if you find that your more kind of natural skill is to interpret your own work, I th I think that's I've used the metaphor already, but I think that is jumping like jumping a big hurdle because. Actually, I think it's it's scarier for a lot of creatives and interpreters to expose themselves by putting on their own work. How did you? How did you? When you first started moving into solo performance, was that a, a conscious thing for you? How did you kind of combat that? You know, this is very personal. This is me. It's my work. There is nowhere else to to hide. I do remember thinking about that. Thinking about that idea that you know, when someone writes their writing is showing you their belief system and and I and I remember thinking wow you know if if people don't like this it does feel more personal because <laughs> saying we don't like you we you. don't like your voice we yeah. don't like your your belief system and I remember feeling kind of daunted by that and I don't know that that's necessarily true I it's about what they're bringing to it and maybe you know, and potentially flaws in the piece, but it's also just not everything is going to be for everyone. And there are a myriad of reasons why a piece doesn't land for someone. And very few of them will have anything to do with, you know, <clears throat> your value as a human being. But, you know, starting out, I remember having that, that fear, but I think the, I think the sort of, the, the sort of abandon that I felt in the form outweighed, outweighed the fear. I love that. <laughs> 
I have no I have no come back to that. I think that's important. One of the things that we we ask everyone that comes on the show and and actually I think you've you've touched on quite a, a few aspects of it already is what would you say or or indeed do you say to people who want to do what you do, who want to write and perform their own work and kind of be that that individual creator if you like. What do you what do you wish you'd been told? when you were starting out that you did have to learn the hard way? Well, one thing I would say that I did do that I would rec- that I always recommend people do is like share your work out loud with people. Mm-hmm. And because in solo shows your partner is the audience and so you've got to get it up in front of people and do I call I would call them living room salons, but it's just like get people get five people in your living room and share your work with them and do that regularly or one of my shows I developed I was like okay every every sort of weekend for this next 10 weeks I'm going to make breakfast for a friend and I'm going to share the material that I've got with them and just talk about them with it as a kind of outside eye and mm-hmm. that was good it kept me really accountable and it it kept the show um, taking over but the other thing with that is because you have to share your work early on You've also got to be really, really good at filtering out people's opinions, descriptive feedback. So any feedback that's like, this could happen, or you should do this. I just don't think that that's useful unless Mm. it's from a very, very, very trusted collaborator who's with you throughout the entire process. I think that kind of feedback, you should just let wash over you and not take it on board so share it a lot and and really the feedback that you're looking for is like where are people leaning forward where are people getting bored and anything people say about it afterwards is really sort of besides the point when you're creating it's like you've showed them a cake that's only been in the oven for 10 minutes of course (laughs) it's gonna you know of course of course they're gonna have criticisms of it but their fixes yeah i just think it's you should just be very wary of their fixes and not really listen to any suggestions they have but but the, the point is to share it out loud and to tune into where are people interested where are people getting bored and not to be rude about their feedback that's really interesting and just know yourself and then there comes a time down the road where that feedback is you know incredibly useful so I would say do that and then I would also say I mean if I could just like take 25 year old Haley's face there was a playwrights unit that I was in when I was 25 and I was so excited to be in it. It was a theater in, at Toronto. And I just wish I could just take her face and say two things. One, learn about story structure. You are a trained actor. You are not a trained writer. There is no, there is nothing to fear learning about the technicalities of making a story. It would have saved me years. Mm. And I also wish I could take her face and say, don't guess at a recipe to make this theater happy happy just make something that you would love to see because you know I spent the year kind of guessing at a recipe and then I made something that I didn't really like and they didn't really like so those are the two things I I love both of those thank you so much for all of this it's been really really gorgeous um our final question is always the same for guests. Um, so just like the title of this podcast, uh, where is your stagey place? Now, this could be uh, a theatre that you visited as a child, uh, a venue you've worked in and loved, a person, place or thing. Very much open to interpretation, but something that is important to you. Uh, so Haley McGee, where is your stagey place? Well, I think my stagey place in London has got to be the Camden People's Theatre and probably the basement of the Camden People's (laughs) Theatre. When I moved here, I must have sent out hundreds 
I mean, truly, hundreds of emails. And they were the only theater who said, yeah, uh, yeah, come in, have a meeting. And they were really interested in me and in my work and, and really took a chance on me. And I spent a lot of time creating in the in the basement, in the studio space at the Camden People's Theater. They have such an important role in the ecology <laughs> of the of the theater and performance, you know, they do experimental performance and live art um, there as well. And yeah, they're a wonderful kind of champion of young emerging artists in the city and incredible ethos, incredible team and very special place. So that's that's my place in Shout out to the Camden People's Theatre. Hayley McGee, thank you so, so much for, for talking to us. So again, Ages of Feeling, Soho Theatre, Tuesday the 14th of February to Saturday the 11th of March. And then who knows beyond that. Um, where can people find out more about you uh, if they want to sort of, yeah, follow follow your your activities? Oh, sure. I'm most active on Instagram. My handle is yes, Haley McGee, and there's no Y in the middle of Haley. Mm-hmm. It's Y-E-S-H-A-L-E-Y-M-C-G-E-E. And I also have a mailing list. I uh, send send out about an email a month, um, and you can sign up there at haleymcgee.ca. That's my website. And I also have on my website blog posts and sort of resources for artists who are wanting to do solo work or self-produce their own theater shows there's a whole bunch of stuff there you can check out on the blog gorgeous that's my afternoon sorted Haley, thank you so much and best of luck with uh, with the run we'll uh, speak to you soon thank you so much and that's it for this week's episode. My massive thanks to Haley McGee for giving up her time to speak to me on the podcast. Uh, if you want to follow us on social media, we are at The Stagey Place. Uh, you can find all of the links and various bits and pieces at our link tree, uh, which is linktr.ee slash stagyplace. And if you want to find out more about me outside of the world of The Stagey Place, I am at suddenlyjoseph, J-O-S-E-P-H, on all socials. And we'll see you next time. Cheers.